Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. I'm Doug Taylor. It is June 27th and great to have you with us. We are starting tonight with Proverbs chapter 14 verse 8. And the verse reads, The wisdom of a clever person is to understand his way, but the folly of fools is deceit. The wisdom of a clever person is to understand his way, but the folly of fools is deceit. Now the process that we normally use in uh, looking at these verses is we're in a section of Proverbs where every, pretty much every individual verse is a separate case that King Solomon put out there so that we could use it to abstract out some ideas that we can use uh, in our everyday lives and to learn about how to to live the best practical life that we can. So the first thing we generally do is ask ourselves the question, what are the questions? In other words, when we read this verse, the wisdom of a clever person is to understand his way, but the folly of fools is deceit. Before we start trying to understand what it's saying, we want to establish what are the questions around it that we have that we need to get out on the table so that if we can answer all those questions, then we will have an understanding of what the verse is telling us. So I would, I would pause and, and ask for you to consider when you read that verse, what kinds of questions pop to mind? That is, what kinds of things aren't clear? What kinds of things are unusual? what kinds of things don't match up, don't make sense, and so forth. The wisdom of a clever person is to understand his way, but the folly of fools is deceit. Any thoughts about questions? Um, so usually in these verses, what King Solomon says does is he puts a contrast, one thing and another thing. Usually it's like the good versus the evil, uh, or a wise person versus a foolish person, and so forth. So here we see the wisdom is to understand his way, but folly of fools is deceit. It's like, well, what does one half have to do with the second half? I mean, there's got to be some reason those two things are matched up there. Okay, and we could also ask, uh, based on your comments, Jim, first of all, it says the wisdom of a clever person. What's a clever person? What does that mean? And what does it mean for a clever person to understand his way? That seems kind of an odd thing. And then it says the folly of fools. Well, that seems slightly redundant. Like, what is the folly of fools? And what's the verse meaning then that the folly of fools is deceit? And again, back to your question overall then, what's the first half have to do with the second half? So... Let me start by asking maybe one of the first questions, what's a clever person? So Charles is saying uh, maybe clever means capable of deceit. Okay, could be. What other possibilities are there? Able to formulate a plan? Okay, good. Excellent. So there, there are a number of possibilities, and interestingly, the commentators 
give a number of different variations around defining what a clever person is, and they center around a theme. So Rashi says that a clever person is someone who weighs his paths. In other words, he carefully considers the different paths that he could take. So this could maybe refer to, you know, major life directions or individual decisions. But he weighs one versus the other, or multiple possible paths. So that's a clever person, in Rashi's view. The Matsudo says that he planned that a clever person is a person who plans his acts so that he doesn't act on impulse. Now, impulses can often be emotionally driven. So the Matsudos is suggesting an approach that keeps the person's intellect out in front of the process so that he's not swayed by his emotions. So, Jim, you said somebody able to formulate a plan. So if you formulate a plan and you hold to your plan, uh, like I'm going to, to um, walk straight downtown, uh, and I'm not going to be swayed by the fact that there is a really nice smelling uh, bakery off on the left or a nice candy store off on the right or whatever it might happen to be. But I'm going to keep my plan in front of me, which is to walk straight downtown, so that I don't get pulled by my impulses. Um, so that's a person that's planning so that he avoids having those emotionally driven impulses pull him off track. Um, and, okay, Jim, and you said uh, yours says cunning. Might be. The different translators translate um, the verses a little bit differently. Uh, might be the wisdom of a cunning person or, uh, or clever. And to your point, doesn't this mean he must also understand his goal? Yes. I think in the Matsudos' case, the person would understand what it is he wants to do, because if he's planning his acts so that he doesn't act on impulse, um, then, uh, then he would have to know what he's after. Um, so yes, I think he would have to understand what his, what his end goal is. Now, the Ibn Ezra says that the clever person's wisdom will enable him to understand his, the way that he should take. So it's a little similar to what Rashi said. Rashi said a person weighs his paths. The Ibn Ezra says a person will un the, the, the clever person's wisdom will enable him to, to understand the way he should take. And the Vilna Gyan relates um, understanding his way to understanding his nature so that he can avoid sinning. So I would take that to mean that the Vilna Gyan is saying the clever person understands his own self and he understands his own self enough to know, and his own nature enough to know where he could be tripped up, and then he uh, makes sure that he avoids doing that, either by planning appropriately or setting fences so that he doesn't get in that kind of a situation, uh, or whatever it might be. So there seems to be a common goal here, a co sorry, a common theme here, that the wisdom of a clever person is to understand their way. That, that phrase is talking about a person who carefully uses his mind to plan his actions and to avoid pitfalls. Okay, any questions on the first part before we move on to the second part?
Okay. Now, there are two approaches to interpreting the second part of the verse. And again, it says, the folly of fools is deceit. One approach is that the folly of fools creates their deceit. That is, because a fool engages in foolish things, he will become deceitful. That'll be the end result of his involvement in foolish things, that he'll teach himself evil and deceit as a result of his foolish actions. That's the position that the Me'iri takes on the second half. So, from that standpoint, the first half is talking about the path the wise person takes, carefully analyzing his paths, while the second half talks about the fact path that the foolish person takes, which results in a life of deceit. Now, Rashi takes the view that the deceit in the heart of the person causes them to act foolishly. So it's the other way around. The cause and effect is, is reversed. So again, so then from his standpoint, we're contrasting the wise person who ensures that he's taking the best path with the deceitful person who ends up making foolish decisions. So both, both uh, interpretations are, are valid. Uh, and that's true with a lot of the verses in Proverbs, that there are a number of different interpretations, uh, and there's not necessarily, uh, you know, when, when two commentators come up with a different approach, they're just taking a different approach to the verse. And that approach, if it's, you know, meets uh, all the criteria of the verse, uh, can also be valid. So here we have two. Okay, any questions on this verse? Okay. So I'd like to digress and talk about uh, an idea that Rabbi Moskowitz shared back uh, a year ago, December. Some thoughts about undoing emotions. Uh, and I came across these in my notes when I was preparing for this class and thought they would be very uh, appropriate to share. They're very much in the context, if you will, of uh, the study of Proverbs. And they're thoughts about undoing emotions. And he, wanted, he, he said like this. He said, since you're dealing with the king of the devils in dealing with your emotions you have to make a commitment around this whole thing for life. <clears throat> In other words, uh, I, I assume you, you would know that when uh, the Torah talks about the, the, the devil and Satan and so forth, uh, it's my understanding that the sages are all in agreement that that's not referring to some separate force out there. It's, it's a person's own evil inclination. Uh, and uh, that uh, Yitzhar Hurrah uh, is, uh, in essence, our emotions. They, they can pull us in the direction of doing uh, evil things and in the direction of seeing the world incorrectly. Uh, emotions can cloud our intellect and our ability to see uh, life rationally. So he said, since you're dealing with the king of the devils and dealing with your emotions, in other words, this hugely powerful force that you have, you have to make a commitment for life around this. The, the process is never done. You're never finished. You, we constantly have to be observant, watching our emotions 
like a person from a distance. So when we fail, then we need to see what caused our failure. And this, this latter step is critical. We have to analyze after the fact when we've made a mistake or messed up to see what happened and try to understand why did it happen. Okay, I, I committed a sin or I made a mistake or I yelled at somebody or I lost control or I got angry or whatever it might be. So I recognize I did this thing and if I involve somebody else, I go clean up the mess uh, and do whatever I need to do. But then there's a further step that I've got to stop and say, well, why did I get angry? Why did that actually happen? Otherwise, all I'll do is keep making the same mistakes over and over again. So Rabbi Moskowitz asked, how do you do this around Leshon Hara, or gossip, which is an extraordinarily powerful force in people's lives? And he said, you make a decision to investigate even just one piece of gossip a day that you're involved in. And you look at three things. Okay, Number one, did the person who told you the information make a mistake? So the first of all is, is the information even true? Or did they make a mistake? Number two, did they lie? And number three, did they exaggerate? Okay. Did they make a mistake? Did they lie? Did they exaggerate? When you start getting into that, it starts taking away some of the mystique, if you will, around you know, a juicy piece of gossip and gets down to really bare and clinical facts. A um, person might have made a mistake uh, and told you something uh, that was just factually incorrect. They might have lied because they had some ulterior motive, or they might have exaggerated. Uh, <laughs> as somebody said once, when you're having a, uh, I think it was a fight with your spouse, uh, never say always when you mean twice. <laughs> you always leave your socks on the floor. Well, how many times has it really happened? Twice. But we exaggerate because our emotions want to make an impact. We have a desire to get a certain end, and so we're, we're compelled sometimes by our, by our emotions to want to exaggerate the exact truth. Rabbi Moskowitz pointed out there are two parts to Lashon Hara. There are the facts, and then there is the interpretation of the facts. It's the story we tell, our, tell around the facts. And he said there is no fun in Lashon Hara without the interpretation. It's the interpretation that appeals to us. Okay, um, if, um, if I look across the street and I see my neighbor stomp out of his house, clearly stamping his feet, and slam the door behind him. Okay, those are the facts. Well, they're just pretty clinical without the interpretation of, oh, he must have had a fight with somebody. Well, I don't know that. That's just the interpretation. The facts are, I saw him come out and put his feet down against the ground very hard, and he pulled the door shut very fast. Okay, there are many possible interpretations to that. And similarly with, you know, things that happen to us uh, all the time. So 
One of the things that we can do is make a different interpretation of the facts. For example, if somebody says something negative about another person, can, can I think of a positive way of interpreting it? Um, if I saw Harry stomping out of his house the other night, uh, and, and the person says, boy, he and his wife must have had a fight, maybe I could suggest that perhaps Harry was testing his new snow boots. I mean, we don't know. So I can choose to think of a positive interpretation. I could also challenge the person who told me this, because in that situation, all he knows is that he saw Harry stomping in his boots. Everything after that is an interpretation. This is hugely important in the world of Proverbs, in the world of Mishlei, and I'll submit in the world of Torah and reality. We have to learn to differentiate between facts and interpretations. It's the interpretations that entice us with regard to Lashon Hara, not the facts. And the interpretations can be, and often are, very wrong. So, in this case, I would have to look at myself and ask myself, what is causing me to enjoy or be drawn to that Lashon Hara, that gossip? Once I start doing that, then I can begin looking at the ideas behind it. And then I can begin to make real change. I will submit to you, real change comes through understanding, not through guilt. Guilt, as we've discussed in previous classes, um, is not a determiner of whether I did something right or wrong. It is only a signpost to cause me to do an investigation to determine whether or not I did the right thing. Because there's all kinds of false guilt out there. I mean, people sometimes feel guilty if they haven't vacuumed their floors, you know, once a week. So where is it written in the cosmos that you have to do that? Okay, that's a guilt that they've laid on themselves. The only real true purpose of guilt is to prompt me to do an investigation with my rational mind to determine whether or not I did the right thing. It's not a determiner of whether or not I did the right thing. It's just the catalyst to get me to do the investigation. But it's the result of the investigation that has the ability to affect the real change in us. Okay, let me stop there and ask, are there any questions on that? Thanks, Jim. Let me cover off um, another point that I've had in my uh, arsenal uh, here to raise that Rabbi Moskowitz raised uh, a while back that I found to be very, very helpful. He said, the Torah does not hold that a person should be goal-oriented. Okay, now goal orientation is a real popular thing in our society, particularly in the West, um, where, you know, you've got to set goals and achieve them, and that's what brings you fulfillment in life. But he has suggested that that's not the Torah approach. But then he said, but how could you live life otherwise? I mean, if you want to visit someone, you take the route to the person's house, which is a goal. So how can you not be goal-oriented? So here is an important premise. He said, the Torah holds that you should be act-oriented rather than goal-oriented. There are goals that are outside an activity, and there are goals that are inherent in an activity. 
For example, you can practice basketball a lot so you can win. Now winning is outside the activity. It's not part of playing basketball itself. Alternatively, you could practice basketball because you enjoy basketball. That's a goal that's inherent in the activity. So that would be act-oriented. And the Torah holds that you should be involved in the activity. And it's a little bit like being in the present moment. Okay, So a surgeon might enjoy being involved A, in the surgery itself, or B, he enjoys being involved in the surgery in hopes of winning a Nobel Prize. The Torah holds from the former, not the latter. In other words, you should be involved in the activity itself. Now, at the beginning of something, we use outside motives and goals to get started. But we ultimately want to change that so that we relate to the activity itself. And if you analyze all the activities that you do, you'll see that, number one, the laws of nature are not inherent in outside goals. In other words, if you need to go to get to school, and there's an accident on the bridge and you can't get there, you'll be depressed if you are outside goal-oriented. But if you're inside goal-oriented, you won't be depressed because you'll say, well, that's the best I can do. I can't get to school today. Okay. In, in the book of Proverbs, the wicked and fools are mostly operating with outside factors. They're not interested in the activity itself, but some desire that has to do with the result of the activity. The Torah holds that you would want to be involved in the activity itself for the sake of the activity. That's my understanding. Now, again, if you analyze all the activities you do, you'll also see that this is the better life because you can eventually get to a point where you just accept reality and say, I did the best I can. So, um, for example, a, 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 a person who uh, uh, goes to work one day and they're in sales and they do everything within their means that day to make a sale and they don't, if a person is really act-oriented, they will still be satisfied because they will realize they did everything they could. Now, if there's something else they should have known or could have learned or should have practiced or whatever, that, you know, that would be different. But if you've done everything within your power, then the next step is to be able to accept reality. If I tried my best to get to New York, but the plane flights were all canceled because of a snowstorm, okay, that's reality. And I accept that, and I'm satisfied because I accept reality and I did everything I could. Now, the wicked try to fit reality within their desires. But the desire of the righteous is to be in reality, not to try to fit it around what they want. Now, Rabbi Moskowitz went on to say, we're all aware of the components of our body. You know, we got eyes and we got a nose and hands and feet and so forth. So when I say you or I, who is the you or the I? It's not my fingers. It's not my toes. It's not my elbow. 
So when I talk about I, who am I referring to? And he said like this, he said, the real you is how you act. If you act one way, we might define you as a thinker. If you act another way, we might define you as a fool. We say that you could make two types of decisions, goals outside the activity or goals inherent in the activity. If you do something wicked, then it's wicked. But you also must know the motive. The motive defines the activity. Because something that looks crazy might inherently be the right act, depending on the motive. So he's suggesting that defines the human being, the activity based on his motives. So if buying a lotto ticket is mathematically a a bad investment, then buying a ticket is a foolish act, and it doesn't matter whether you win or not. Even if you win, the act of buying the ticket was still a foolish act. Okay, It's based on the motive and the action, not the result. So we would not generally praise a person who um, uh, wins the lotto by saying, wow, that was really smart of you to buy that lottery ticket. We'd say, no, that was a foolish act to buy that lottery ticket. It's an accident that you won the lotto. Okay. He went on to say, he said, dieting seems to be completely goal-oriented. But that's not really true. Inherently, logic tells you that you should go on a diet. If you go on a diet in order to look good, that's looking outside. But if you do it because health dictates it, that's inherent in the act. Okay, You're not looking outside for some external thing. It's inherent in the act itself. Okay. In the practical world, okay, you sometimes have to be goal-oriented because you need the practical. But outside of that, he's saying you should enjoy the activity itself. And interestingly, in this discussion came up this idea, uh, free will is not two equal choices between good and evil. Free will is that you act in accordance with your emotions for the first 13 to 14 years of life. And then your free will is that you can continue to live like that, or you can work on undoing it and getting your intellect uh, in command of the situation. And importantly, your view of life can't be forced on you. It has to be a development based on a clear understanding of, uh, of the ideas. Okay, let me pause and ask, are there any questions on that? What about the, and Jimmy Vass, what about the notion that one who enjoys the Sabbath is the one who has prepared for it? Yes, I think that is, um, I think that's accurate, and I don't think that would be in contradiction with what Rabbi Moskowitz is saying, uh, because it's certainly not saying that, uh, he's certainly not saying that, you know, you shouldn't, plan ahead for something, uh, but uh, he might say, so let's, let's carry that out a little bit, um, if a person cooks in order to have uh, a, 
a um, uh, let, let me carry it a little beyond Shabbos here. Uh, a person sweats in the kitchen cooking very hard in order to be able to have guests say that, boy, you make good food. Versus a person who works very hard in the kitchen because they really enjoy cooking. Okay, and I think what he's suggesting is that that latter is ideally the Torah approach. Now, cooking in the kitchen because I'm preparing so I will have food on Shabbos, and then on Shabbos I thoroughly and you know enjoy the food. I don't think that that would be in contradiction with that. Uh, but I think what he's trying to get at is um, uh, the idea that seems to come up often in our society where we get hung up on the end result more than the act itself. A, a typical example would be education, where students will, they don't really, a, a student may not care at all about the learning, they just want to do what they have to do to get the grade. And that's an outside goal-oriented kind of thing, as opposed to a, a true student would be just involved in the learning and enjoying that and loving that, and the grade is a byproduct. Uh, of the fact that they were involved in the learning, which I think is the way it's uh, intended to be. Uh, unfortunately, we've become, you know, so goal-oriented around such things that, uh, you know, we now even have classes for studying on how to pass the test, um, which kind of seems crazy inherently. I mean, the whole idea is the learning. Uh, so... That's what I think he's getting at uh, to, uh, uh, to be act-oriented instead of goal-oriented. Does that help? Okay, let's move back to Proverbs. Uh, we are in chapter 14, verse 9. And the verse reads, A guilt offering will intercede for fools... But among the Yeshirim, that's someone who has a love of truth and learning, that is God's will. A guilt offering will intercede for fools, but among the Yeshirim, those that love truth and learning, that is God's will. So I will pause there and ask, what are the questions? Good question, Jim. What is that? When it says, among the Yeshirim, that is God's will. I want to take a quick look and see how Art Scroll translates that, because this was Rabbi Moskowitz's translation. They say, a guilt offering will intercede for fools. Uh, oh, interesting. They say, but favor is among the upright, and they insert the word Hashem, but in brackets. So that's, as I understand it, an interpretation. Um, okay. So that's a good question. I would also want to know, how does a guilt offering intercede for fools? Um, and kind of, what does the second half mean altogether? Um, and then, what does the first half have to do with the second half? So Rabbi Moskowitz had this interpretation. He said, the first step is that God's will is that you should be a lover of truth. In other words, someone who loves truth. 
The question is, God also wants to help the fool. Now, when the fool sins, he's not going to correct that because he sees the truth. It's going to come about because of some type of guilt. So it has to be in his framework. So when he brings the guilt offering, he thinks he's doing the right thing, but not because he sees the truth. So God is giving the fools a way to deal with the situation and hopefully ultimately see the truth. And Rabbi Moskowitz said, ultimately God is not interested in sacrifices, but that you understand and live by the truth. According to the Rambam, Maimonides, the sacrifices were created for the benefit of the public. But ultimately, God's will is that you live the life of the Chacham, the wise person. And that comes through wisdom, not through bringing sacrifices. The study of sacrifices may help you, but the actual bringing of the sacrifices, uh, according to Rabbi Moskowitz, is only for fools. The righteous did bring sacrifices because they have to live in accordance with the system. But the purpose of sacrifices is for fools. Does that make sense? And are there any questions on that verse? A very interesting uh, interpretation by him. Okay, let's move on. Uh, Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 10. And the verse reads, The heart knows the bitterness of his soul, and in his happiness a stranger cannot partake. The heart knows the bitterness of his soul, and in his happiness a stranger cannot partake. So what kinds of questions could we ask around that? Okay, good, Charles, thank you. Bitterness and joy seem like a contradiction. Right. They're, they're, uh, they're kind of opposites in a way. Heart knows the bitterness of his soul, and in his happiness uh, or joy a stranger cannot partake. So I'd also want to know uh, what's the bitterness of his soul. When it says the heart knows the bitterness of his soul, what's that about? And why can't a stranger partake of his happiness in the second half? And then, Charles, to your point, what's the first half have to do with the second half? We've got two, two opposite things here. So Rabbi Moskowitz explained the verse like this. He said, when it says his soul, it means his emotions. Happiness and bitterness uh, exist in the emotions. Now, he said, the emotions know the bitterness of itself, that is, and not of others. In other words, emotions are an experience, a very personal experience, and you cannot experience another person's experience. And this is according to uh, Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch. So you have a personal experience of emotions, but somebody else cannot experience that. Uh, now, the word empathy uh, can be interpreted to mean that I feel sorry for you because I'm feeling what you're feeling, but 
we're suggesting here that's impossible. That I can't feel what you feel. I might feel something that I think is similar, but um, but there's uh, the emotions are a very personal experience. And so then we ask the question, well, why is Proverbs telling us this? And the class I was doing with Rabbi Moskowitz, the class wanted to say that it makes you aware that you cannot empathize with another person by projecting on them what you might feel. In other words, experience is a personal thing. And it forces you to realize the idea that, that is, this, this forces you to realize the idea that you must interpret based on the facts, not on projecting onto others. So, um, yeah, Jim, I see your point. Uh, there are people who think they can do that. Uh, and, and that's a dangerous thing. You hear people say stuff all the time, oh, I know exactly how you feel. Well, no, not necessarily. Uh, I can tell you some things, you can observe some facts, but I can't know another person's personal experience. And it's dangerous for me to assume that I can. Because once I assume that, then I stop looking at the facts and I, I get caught up in, can get caught up in the emotions and projecting my emotions onto them and that becomes a dangerous ground to, to traverse. The opposite, by the way, is also true. If I have a certain experience I shouldn't take it personally because, because others are only looking at it through their emotions. Okay? They're not going to be able to necessarily understand my emotions or what I'm feeling. So the only question should be whether I'm in reality or not. If I'm operating in reality, great. If I'm not, I need to deal with that and take care of it. Now, Matsudas David gives another interpretation. He says there's a certain bitterness when you start studying Torah. Facing reality is not always a pleasant thing. The person who starts studying Torah and experiences the bitterness and how it hits his emotions, that's a very personal experience. No one else can know that type of pain. You having to face reality given, you know, your particular emotional makeup. So when the person finally breaks out or breaks through to see the beauty of facing reality, that experience also cannot be experienced by others. So again, it's, it's reminding us that uh, we can't experience what other people are feeling, and they can't necessarily experience what we're feeling. So, then the question came, well, if we're not interested in the emotional life, but we're interested in the intellectual life, what is this in the, you know, in the second half that seems to get us focused on striving toward happiness? What does that have to do with living a life of Mishle, a life of Proverbs? And Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to say, you can't live without emotions. That's part of being human. 
The only thing we're against is emotions making decisions. You don't strive toward happiness, you work toward truth and reality. The barometer as to how real the ideas are is how you are affected emotionally. In other words, if you reach this level and suddenly you realize the beauty of learning and your emotions don't bother you at all, then your intellect can be in control. The, the tzaddik, the righteous person, has powerful emotions, but they're attached to the love of truth and justice. The emotions that the righteous person experiences are a result of the ideas. So the verse is saying that this is the result of a life of truth. Okay, And in his happiness, a stranger cannot partake. The person that gets to this level where they see the beauty of the ideas and where their, their emotions are a byproduct of seeing the beauty of, of God's wisdom, that is uh, a happiness that a stranger cannot partake of. So when you reach a certain level, you're happy with, with the world of ideas. The conflicts between you and your personality don't bother you. It's not that the righteous person doesn't have emotional reactions. It's that his intellect takes control. So he's not driven by the emotions, but his intellect is out in front and his emotions are in the back seat. Okay, any questions on this verse? Okay. Let's do one more. Chapter 14 in Proverbs, verse 11. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, and the tent of the Yosher will sprout. Okay? Which means he'll keep developing it, according to Rabbi Moskowitz. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, and the tent of the Yosher will sprout. Now, let me, let me pause and just clarify some facts here. From our previous studies, uh, we learned that a yosher is a person who studies. He investigates, he becomes a hacham, a wise person. He has a love of truth. He has a desire to learn, a love of learning, a desire to search for truth. So the yosher is a clear-thinking, straightforward lover of learning. In case that helps. So the verse reads, The house of the wicked will be destroyed, and the tent of the Yosher will sprout. So with that, what are the questions? Okay, Jim, why does the wicked have a house? The good a tent. Very good point. Very good question. First part talks about a house. Second part talks about a tent. And... I think it's a virtual guarantee that King Solomon did not pick those words by accident. Good question. We could also ask, why will the house of the wicked be destroyed? And why will the tent of the Yosher sprout? So with regard to the house of the wicked, we've covered this in um, some previous verses. Uh, and essentially, it works like this. 
The wicked rely on schemes and plans and devices and an approach of life that is at odds with reality. They are focused on their desires. They're not focused on truth and reality. And they're making decisions emotionally based in order to achieve those desires. Now, because they're not operating in accordance with truth and reality, they are bound to make mistakes because you can't ignore truth and reality and not eventually get bounced by it. So the sheer fact that they are not operating in accordance with reality suggests that eventually they will make mistakes that will cause them uh, to fall. And so eventually a person operating with that kind of life philosophy and that kind of mindset his house will be destroyed. He will bring destruction upon himself. And we see that in, in you know, cases in history of, of uh, wicked people uh, that you know, they may start out and it looks like they're being very successful and you wonder if anything can stop them. And then they start making mistakes. They start believing they're invincible. They become megalomaniacs. Uh, and they make practical mistakes in the real world that bring about their downfall. Uh, Hitler did that. Uh, others have done so as well. So eventually they're going to make mistakes and their house will be destroyed. Now by contrast, the Yosher, the one who loves wisdom, the Yosher will grow in his learning and grow in his knowledge of truth and reality and thus he'll be making more correct and more correct decisions and his results will be more successful because he's taking into account reality, consequences, other people's personalities, a holistic view of the situation. He's looking at everything and he's using the principles of wisdom uh, to uh, operate from. So he'll continue to seek that truth, that knowledge, those correct decisions. So he'll continue to develop his tent as his wisdom and knowledge increases. Okay? So he has the opposite experience of the wicked. Now, Jim, to your point, why a house versus a tent? The physical protections in the physical world are not really what protect you. It's wisdom that protects you. And this is true in virtually any area of life. A hacham, a wise person, the yosher, can start with nothing but wisdom and ideas, and he can be successful. The house of the wicked suggests that they are relying on the strength of the structure in the physical world, while the tent of the yosher suggests less reliance on the physical to protect him. Okay? So they rely more on the physical, while the Yosher is relying more on ideas and wisdom to protect him. Any questions on that verse? All right, in that case, we will stop here for the night. I appreciate your joining and hope you can join us next week.